Welcome to Peace, Love, and Soup. Audio nourishment for both the heart and mind. With Brian Delaney and Tave Fashe Drake. One kind word can warm three winter months. Japanese proverb. It's that time of year when the weather gets brisk and the leaves change color and Portlanders have one thing on their mind. It's not what you think. It's wild mushrooms. You know, I never knew mushroom hunters were so secretive as to where they find their fungi. I know, they are. I'm super sorry you couldn't join Mm. me and Matt Taylor, the exec director of Westwind, last weekend. Mm -hmm. Because we had an amazing time there with fellow Sunnyside Environmental School family and alumni. In fact, I felt like a kid again traipsing around the Northwest Forest searching for mushrooms. You know, you sounded like Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) Did you have a good trip? Brian Delaney! (laughs) Seriously. Uh, Similar to when we went foraging for nettles and dandelions last spring. Yes, exactly like that. Mm. Well, even more so, actually. And in fact, there was a wealth of fascinating information. So have a notebook and a pencil at hand because there just might be a test at the end. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. Um, Coco, our correspondent, goes to Sunnyside. And was she there with you as well? No, she wasn't. But she did do another Vox Pop exclusively for Peace, Love, and Soup. And this time, it's on mushrooms. Cool. Well, you know, Coco isn't the only returning voice this month. St. James, who we met in episode... Episode 7, wasn't it? Chili month. Yes, this past summer. Invited us to feast on his top secret mushroom and sage bisque. Oh, it was so rich and delicious. And he's such a sweet and generous person. And like Matt of Westwind, a fine educator. Well, a fine afternoon cooking and conversing was had by all. And I'm personally ready for Thanksgiving. You will be too. I am ready. Mm. Tavi, now tell the listeners about the musical artists featured this month. I had the opportunity to meet with Japanese composer, guitarist, and singer-songwriter Hiroyo Skamoto. His music is best described as, quote, an innovative, impressionistic journey filled with earthy, organic soundscapes that impart a mood of peace and tranquility. Or simply gorgeous. It is. So without further delay, we give you episode 11. Wild Wild Mushroom Bisque. Sunnyside Environmental School Alumni and Friends Weekend here at Westwind on the Oregon coast, and we are about to go wild mushroom hunting. Matt Taylor, the executive director here at Westwind, also former Olympic canoeist, yeah. <laughs> tell our listeners just briefly about Westwind. Sure. Westwind is a 529-acre camp and environmental retreat center. We are in the middle of the Cascade Head scenic research area in the Cascade Head Biosphere Reserve. We have a farm. We have over one mile of oceanfront. 
And then we host over 5,000 people a year at summer camp, outdoor school, retreats, workshops, events, promoting the idea of living sustainably with nature and having life-changing experiences in the outdoors. Thank you so much for having us out. Okay, thank you, Tave. Deborah Nass, former teacher at Sunnyside Environmental School. Why are you here mushroom hunting today? I'm interested in being able to forage and eat in the forest safely. It's the thing to do. Says Rain Lanning, acupuncturist. Mushrooms have incredible immune properties. That's my interest. What's your name and why are you here mushroom hunting today? My name is Celia. My camp name or outdoor school name is Mycelium, so I feel a connection to mushrooms. We well, here we go. I better not miss. I work with the media. I'm happy to. <laughs> We've got a mushroom camp in two weeks, and it runs the gamut of people who are like PhD mycologists to folks who've just seen them in children's books. But in a nutshell, we're looking for the fruit of the fungus, and we'll go rummaging and looking underground and try to find a big what's called mycelial mat. It's called a mat because it's only a few inches deep. That fungus is usually permeating like the hummus or the detritus layer, the duff and dunder, that's it. We're gonna be looking for three types of mushrooms. There are saprophytes, which are eating dead things. Saprophytic mushrooms are eating dead material in the ground or eating a dead tree. And I'll show you some beautiful specimens of uh, shelf polypores. And then there are parasites that eat living things and they're not as glamorous as mushrooms. And then the last one are mycorrhizal and they're the real stars of the mushroom world. And they're the ones that are living in symbiosis around the root sheath of trees, shrubs and bushes and, and then it'll pop up in the ground. So your mushroom is mystically budding off of this mycelial net underground. There's a node that forms from that, the mushroom starts growing, grows up, and it's just the fruit. So we cut it off, eat it, and then that mycelial net is like, I'm gonna send up more mushrooms if the conditions are right. So you can have multiple flushes right there, same spot, just the apple of the fungus. So it could go on for two weeks or two months. Two months, exactly. And if we find a big flush of edibles, we'll grab them. They're not gonna be any good in two weeks when we have our actual mushroom camp. Even in two weeks, those mushrooms will grow, fill with water, drop their spores, and you know, they're fair game for eating. Squirrels get them, the deer love them, so we're not stealing from a later group. All right, we're gonna walk straight down the stairs here and sort of gather in the trees there and just look all along, and if you see one, let me know. It's like Easter egg hunting, it's so exciting. The golden egg, so to speak, is Matsutake and you're looking on the ground for just a little hump in the ground with a break in the litter layer. <gasps> oh, hi. So, it, at first glance, I thought somebody dropped a radish. <laughs> and let's grab them, because we'll identify these. They're pretty. This is, yeah, yep. these I believe are, are Rusla's mycologists and mycophiles like myself. It's a lot of really cheesy jokes. So these are called jars. Just another Rusula. And the <laughs> mushroom hunters are notorious once they encounter thousands of them. People get into the habit of just kicking jars. But let's keep walking. We are on the search for the Matsutake. <laughs> Holy duff. Oh yeah, okay, so these might be the candy caps. We should cut a few of those off and take them in. And there are candy caps, there's a variant of this that it can taste like maple syrup when you cook it. Ooh. Whoever's got that basket with a knife, just cut a few of these. 
Anybody want to harvest this one just to practice? There you go. Ooh, you go for it. So here's that mushrooming ethic that y'all hear about to not pull it out. So you see how a bunch of stuff attached to it came out? That stuff is the mycelium. The way to properly do it, you come down and you take your knife and you kind of get it down on the ground like that and just cut it good. That's it. And you want a knife that you can dig in the dirt, not like your special knife. All right, we're off to four species. Oh, <laughs> we're not gonna get far. What are those? <laughs> it looks like a flapjack. Yeah, like they're a called slippery jacks. First of all, they're so ubiquitous and so gregarious that I'm not really worried about ripping out some of the hyphae. But these types of mushrooms, a lot of people like to knife out so you don't end up with this sort of broken base. And I'm gonna pass around. This is a little bit chalky, the way it breaks. Now, everybody should pick one of these because it's really slimy. Yeah. Last year, there were tens of thousands of them. Looked like flying saucers everywhere <laughs> on the ground. And we all ignored them. And then we had this gentleman at the camp who grew up in Poland. And he's like, my people would have collected all of these. And we love them. And they're totally edible. You got to cook them. And they pickle them. And they're very popular in Poland. So what it means is that the Northwest is just really kind of snobby about its mushrooms because it's spoiled with the king and queen bolete and the fantastic chanterelles. I mean, this is like slimy, like who wants to put that in there? Um, and we can get some to cook and try them. All right, we're on the good side. We're technically looking for four species today. We're looking for many, but the three cooking mushrooms that you just can dream up. The big one is the Matsutake. That's the one that we'd find out here. Chanterelles, the whole Northwest rainforest is full yeah. of them, right? And then the king and queen bolete, porcini. The slippery jacks, a fourth, we can eat. We found those. Even some of those rusulas, the are edible. They're just not choice. Oh, it's stepping <gasps> over. What is wow. It's one of the has sponge under it. Oh. What is well, it? That's a bolete. Look at how green it is. But here, hold that up. That's oh, a great Whoa! Bite. It's like a delicious what cake. Is that? Like strawberry yogurt. Oh, Feels like a sea. Look at do you see oh, yeah. this? Look at the bottom when you squeeze it. It's actually letting water out. Oh that's insane. <laughs> Biggest mushroom. That is a type of bolete. All the boletes <laughs> will have a spongy mass on the bottom as opposed to a gill. It's not a gilled mushroom. All right, let's keep going. This area, historically, is the beginning of Matsutake's perfect habitat. Sandy, well-draining soils, pine trees, Matsutake dream. And the only murder from mushroom foraging in Oregon history was over Matsutake. <gasps> yeah. And that was in Central Oregon, not out here. <laughs> What's the story of I think I remember hearing about that back in the 90s. My uh, stepfather is Japanese, and there was a murder over the rights to harvest the mushrooms in a certain area because they are worth hundreds of dollars a pound. The patch that my stepfather used to hunt has been in his family for generations. and <laughs> It's a big deal for the Japanese. I'm sure you guard that area, too. He didn't pass it to me. Yeah. I'm always stepson. So. <laughs> like this. Here we go. We got it. Mm -hmm. So we'll just oh save that gosh. for everybody. Hello. Right over here, folks. We've got a Matsutake <laughs> pushing up. And as soon as we see this one, we'll see, see more. Here is a Matsutake. 
This is the stage you want to find them in, is just breaking the surface. But let's talk about how to harvest these. A lot of people are like, you can only cut them out. That is not true. There's a bunch of mushrooms you actually want to twist and break. Now, matsutakis, you don't cut them out. So you reach for the base and you try to twist them. Clean break. And then they come out. Now, so there's a little bit of the mycelium that comes out with it, but that's not much. And a lot of them, it's really deep. And so you do more damage trying to get your knife in there. You kind of push it back together, cover it. So this is, these are the choice ones. Now this does take a while to clean, but you see how the veil is still on it? Skills, which have the spores, is completely, it's called veiled. So it's not open yet. And a lot of mushrooms you want to catch before the veil breaks so that sand and dirt don't get in the gills. That's kind of a mushroom connoisseur thing. These are kind of like a cool stage to get them in. So you don't get any of the sand in the gills. And we can cook that up. In Tokyo, it would sell for 100 bucks. If you clean it up real nice. Is there a way to propagate it? So one thing people do is when they find the open ones, they tap it and just keep it going. Nobody's learned to cultivate them. Oh, so the I mean, spores like, spread out. But to make them spread out, like if you grab a mushroom and bury it somewhere, will it grow another mushroom? Yeah. They could sporate, yeah. yeah. They're microscopic spores, and uh -huh. all you need is two. Okay. It could be humans, but also uh, animals. Oh, wait, so Acre. how do the animals spread them? They eat them, they and eat them, then yeah. the mycelium lives through the, the whole digestive system? I think the spores system. can live through it, yeah. A lot of fungal spores are super robust. But it's really when the spores get spread around. So it's just been naturally expanding. There's a big grove of amanitas up here that I'm looking for. What are amanitas? They are the fairy tale mushroom. <gasps> yeah, they're poisonous and psychedelic. They're like the classic red with the little white dots on the top. Like the ones you see in Alice in Wonderland. Exactly. This is their spot. It's really beautiful. There's dozens of these red amanitas. And all those dots are the broken hymen that wraps around it, and it breaks through it, and then the dots are just the leftover pieces. It's not oh. just trying to look good. Interesting. Do you want to paraphrase that for me, Drew? The little dots on the amanita mushrooms are not things that like grow on it, those little white dots on the red mushrooms, mm -hmm. but instead are part of like a protective shell around the uh, mushroom while it's growing. And once that breaks, those are just kind of the little leftover anchor points. Mario Classic mushroom. Mario, yeah. Mario Wait, Mario like the video game? Yeah. They eat them and they throw up or they have the bonkers rainbow vision, you know? I actually have a coworker right now who's outdoor school name is Amanita. Here, look, look at this, they're beautiful. So these are called turkey tails and they're a shelf polypore. And there's more shelf polypores under here. Turkey tails, people boil them into a tea, some medicinal quality, and they're saprophytes. So dead tree, all these funguses are just breaking down the tree. Who here has ever picked or eaten a lobster mushroom? So lobsters are a rusula that's been infected by another fungus that transforms that rusula into a tasty and somewhat fishy lobster mushroom. Right here is the cap, and then this guy just invaded it. And this big puffy Ooh. sponge mass clearly gobbled up that guy. We'll just leave it because it's gonna keep growing. Fungus loves fungus. <laughs> the original, the food czar at Stanford started cutting the burgers with mushrooms to both cut costs in more flavor and healthier. I did read about that. Yeah. 
We're back in the kitchen. We're all getting ready to have lunch. Yeah. And uh, I just want to ask, what was your favorite part about mushroom hunting today? Well, I've actually been getting really into mycology recently. I just love discovering them, and I love the ones that are coming up and crackling through the duff, right? You can start to see the white cap peeking out. You're also a teacher at Outdoor School. Yeah. I'm actually on the plants field study, and we focus on mushroom and lichen as the mycelium and how they have the ability to connect to roots. And through those connections, they can send signals to other trees, and there's a really cool symbiosis where the trees create sugar that the mycelium needs, and mycelium mines for nutrients and minerals that the tree needs. I learned recently that in one tablespoon of soil in a fertile forest, there can be enough mycelium. If they tied it all together and stretched it out, it could be nine miles long. What was your favorite mushroom you found today? those turkey tail shelf mushrooms. I kind of want to know what that tea tastes like. My favorite part about mushroom hunting is being able to show someone else those little humps in the sand and the dirt and then finding an actual matsutake. I, I just love learning all that information from Matt. It's just exciting. Did you have a favorite mushroom? I like to eat them, so matsutake. Matsutake it is. What do you have here? I found a chicken of the woods mushroom. And I'm looking at it. It's about two feet by one foot. Yeah, and that's just what I could carry. How much do you think it weighs? Probably about 40 to 50 pounds. And that's an edible one? That's an edible one, yeah. They're beautiful, vibrant. It is literally pumpkin orange. This is my first one I've found. I'm just excited to read about it and find out the best way to cook it, but I've heard soups are good. It's called chicken of the woods because it's a good meat substitute, and it's a substantial mushroom. And you walked in how far with that? About a mile in the pouring rain. It's a very exciting time here at West Wind. Matt Taylor, do you think it was a success today? I think so. Are you kidding? This is like the beginning of the season, and we found plenty of interesting mushrooms. I think so, too. All right, so tell our listeners where we can find out more. Westwind.org. We're a nonprofit, charitable organization. We accept donations. They're tax deductible. Most of our donations go right to camperships, bringing children who are underserved to Westwind. We're built and focused on enjoying a wonderful meal and being warm inside for a moment and then getting out and be smiling and happy at the end of it. Yes, it's always a fun time and it's just one big family here for all of us in the Pacific Northwest. Thanks again. Thank you. Coco and welcome back. Thanks for being our Peace, Love, and Soup correspondent. Yeah. You were such a hit in episode eight that we are delighted you're going to be here for wild mushrooms. Definitely. Do you have a favorite mushroom? Well, I don't really like mushrooms. They're kind of good tasting. (laughs) Uh, Well, so why don't you like them? Because their texture is kind of weird, and I just don't really like their taste. I've only tasted a few, Mm -hmm. like three or maybe two or maybe even four, but... You're adorable. I know. Uh, So I have a feeling that if you try a few extra types of mushrooms, you might find one you like. Yes. I'd probably try that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Coco, when did you start at KBOO? Well, I started, I think it was July, 
and I interviewed people about superheroes, and then the next month I interviewed people about emotions, and this month I talked about Halloween. Are you having fun? Yes. Yeah. Did you ever have any idea that you would also be part of a podcast and be the star correspondent? No. Well, it's happening. <laughs> Coco, do you mind I ask, how old are you and where do you go to school? Um, I go to school at Sunnyside and I am nine. I'm in fourth grade. Hey. And my daughters, too, went to Sunnyside. Cool. Part of the Sunnyside curriculum, they do wild plant identification out on field trips. Have you done anything like that with foliage or trees? Oh, yeah, I did it with trees because we went to the Lone Fir Cemetery. What kind of trees did you see? Well, there's only one fir in the whole cemetery when they first started. That was the lone fir. I never knew this before. Because it's one fir tree. So what we did is we wrote down the name of the tree. We drawed the tree from two different perspectives. And the first perspective that we did was just the whole tree. And then we did a branch of the tree. Because they like to integrate a lot of science and art into their regular learning at Sunnyside. Mm-hmm. Like last year yeah. we learned about Chinook as a native tribe. Yeah, last year you did a lot of study on native peoples and First Nations. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit starstruck, actually. I'm so <laughs> delighted that you're in here. That's kind of like interviewing a superstar. Well, her hair is super fabulous. Look at that. I know. It's beautiful. I dyed it yesterday. Why green hair? Well, it's a mint because I just really like it minty mint. green. And so I bleached it and dyed it yesterday. And she got a little bit of a mohawk, half hawk. On yeah. one side. I just have half sh- shaved head and then the other half is not. Cool. You often do Vox Pops for the Youth Collective, and that's what we're having you do as well. Talk to us about those. What does a Vox Pop entail? You usually have this little microphone kind of box thing. You will hold up the microphone to someone and you'll just talk into it. They talk into it and you can ask them, like, say, what emotion is your cue emotion or something like that. And then you could just get it to a computer where you can shorten it, make it longer, do an intro and outro, put it together and stuff. And are you asking people all the same question or are you asking them different questions? I usually ask them all the same question. What are you going to ask people this month for our show? I'm going to ask, what is your favorite mushroom and why? And I also would love it if you would ask people, what is umami? Yeah, okay. Ask people, what is umami? What do you think umami is? Well, I kind of know. I think it's like the fifth flavor. Do you know what the other four are? Well, there's salty, Mm -hmm. sweet, bitter, and sour. Yeah. Okay, and then I I have to ask, too, do you have a favorite soup? Um, Can a stew count? Sure. My mom uh, makes a special stew, and it's pretty much, it doesn't sound good, but it tastes amazing. It's pretty much some vinegar, a lot of ketchup, noodles, vegetables, and um, some meat. And what does she call this concoction? Well, I just call it Grammy Special Stew. But it's your mom's? No, my grandma actually made it first. Your grandmother made it and taught your mom. Mm-hmm. Has your mom taught you yet? No, because it's kind of complicated to make. Well, maybe in a couple, three years. Yeah. What is your favorite soup? So my favorite soup, let's see. Hmm. I really do love seafood soups. I mean, a good clam chowder is kind of hard to beat, truthfully. Yeah, definitely. Onion soup with the bread and the cheese melted on top. 
Oh, like French onion soup? Mm. Have you had that? I love onions, no, oh. but oh. I think I love onions and garlic. I love just eating them straight no matter what. What are you looking forward to in the month of November? Oh, I'm looking forward to add some more things to our garden because we picked everything in our garden. Like, we found a gigantic radish, like as big as my face. Wow. Yeah. We have some jumbo garlic. Like, each clove is, like, as big as my palm. Is that called elephant garlic? I think so, because it's, like, gigantic. Mm. It's kind of as big as the radish. (laughs) Maybe you can. (laughs) What is in your soil in Sunnyside? (laughs) Silly Brian Delaney. He grew up in Boston on the East Coast. He does not know about these things. Yes. Well, well, now that we got all the hard-hitting questions out of the way, we're going to now play your segment that you went out and recorded. So here we go. Coco, take it away. Hello. Um, I'm Coco from the KBS Collective, and I'm interviewing people about what is your favorite mushroom and why, and what is umami? What is your favorite mushroom? My favorite mushroom? Um... I like shiitake mushrooms. They're really good uh, in a lot of savory dishes. They give flavor to rice. I'm a little bit of a cooking nerd. Okay, I usually, I don't have like a specific favorite mushroom. It's kind of like the one where I just like walk into the store and I see there's mushrooms and I just grab one and throw it in the shopping cart. Um, What is your favorite mushroom? I really like chanterelles because I find them to be very delicate and really flavorful with just some olive oil and salt. My favorite mushroom. I don't think I have a favorite mushroom. Probably morels. I like shiitake. I love a portobello marinated and grilled. It's like a vegan option to a sandwich. My favorite is called cauliflower mushroom. You can put it in soup and it ends up coming out kind of like an egg noodle. So that's kind of fun. Just the ones that you eat. I guess I have to say one that won't poison me. I'll pick a mushroom and I'll just eat it. Eventually, someday, that'll probably kill me. But so far, so good. I was going to say psilocybin. You got to hunt for them, which is fun, and you got to cook them in butter, which is delicious. What's your favorite mushroom? Do you like mushrooms on pizzas? No. And also, do you know what umami is? A mommy? Umami. I don't know what a umami is. Do you? Yeah, but I'm not going to tell anybody. Do you know what umami is? Yeah, but I couldn't explain it to you. I know what it is, but like, I also don't know what it is. Does that make any sense? Kind of. Other than like an off version of an insult, I don't know. <laughs> Do you know what umami is or um, or umami? Umami or umami? I, I don't know how to pronounce it either. I pronounce it umami and I do know what it is. Cool, thank you. I think it was a restaurant once in Los Angeles. Is that true? I don't really know. Okay. At first I thought it was like a seaweed. An old roommate of mine once made an umami bomb. Just a bowl with bacon and mushrooms and soy sauce and other really savory, salty things. I believe it means deliciousness in Japanese. Oh, well that's interesting. I didn't know that. What is it? Um, it's like the fifth flavor, I think. Nice. Like sweet and salty and stuff. So what is umami? When I think of umami, it makes me think of what gives the food its soul. It makes everything taste really yummy and just kind of right, and you just want to eat it all. Cool. This is Coco signing off from the Cable Youth Collective with Peace, Love, and Soup. And back to you, Tavi and Brian.
As always, you killed it, Coco. Very insightful and entertaining. Thanks, Thanks Coco. Coco. Bye. St. James, and thank you for inviting us to your home today. Thanks for having me. We're here in the kitchen of St. James, getting ready to make this month's highly anticipated top secret mushroom bisque. Thanks for coming in. I'm really excited to make this for you guys. It feels a little bit more high pressure now that you said that. (laughs) But yeah, I haven't shared the recipe with a lot of people. We're honored. I hope that you guys like it and want to make it for your friends and family. A lot of times I like to make it with risotto or just like if you have some really nice bread that goes great with it too. You can make it with the basic ingredients, mushrooms, some kind of like butter, butter substitute and some flour. And then whatever vegetables you like, whatever spices you like, anybody can put it together. You're going to give us enough information that someone could make a similar soup to their own taste at home. Yeah, I think... Cooking is power. You know, if you're able to feed yourself, if you're able to use the resources around you so you don't have to be out like buying dinner every night. Yeah, I support that. We should mention that St. James is wearing a T-shirt that says masculinity is a prison. Can I say that this T-shirt gets me in so many conversations? The shirt is not speaking directly about men. It's speaking about this culture that's perpetrated by men and the definition of masculinity that we operate under. I think a lot of people refer to it as toxic masculinity, but then toxic masculinity is the prevailing version of masculinity. Therefore, masculinity is a prison. There's nothing wrong with being masculine. Just don't be a jerk. But see, that's the whole thing is masculinity isn't necessarily owned by men. There are women who can be masculine and there's men who can be feminine. There's all these things that box men into being a way that they think they have to be because it's perpetrated in pop culture and like be a man, right? I feel most masculine when I'm wearing my cherry dress, to be frankly honest with y'all. You feel most masculine. Well, it kind of goes into just being who you are and just expressing yourself openly and honestly and not being concerned whether it's masculine or feminine that I'm acting it's just I'm being I grew up I have five sisters and I was the youngest basically their doll Uh, and since I was young I know how to like braid hair and paint nails and that's not necessarily I think anything that like detracts from my masculinity in fact I don't think that makes you less of a man. But I was going to say, it is something that society dictates, and I think we've sort of come to the understanding that we're not getting anywhere boxing in men or women, and really all of that is being dictated by a consumer culture. If you feel insecure about yourself as a woman, you're going to buy more products, you're going to stifle the real you in there so that you are then a commodity for this toxic man using women. So there. And we got to cook a soup. Yeah. All right, so catch us up. What did you do? I chopped up the mushrooms, garlic, and onions. Put that aside with some mushroom caps and as much garlic as an individual would want to use. And then you can come back to that later. The first thing, you're going to have some melted butter in the bottom of a pot. You shouldn't have it too hot. You should have it about medium low. And then once the butter is like fully in liquid form, You add your garlic, onions, and mushrooms. 
and then let the onions be your notifier. As soon as they start to get like a little translucent and really soaking up that butter, you're going to know it's time for the flour. Now, these mushrooms, did you and Tave pick them up at the farmer's market last week? We did. Um, They're these beautiful mini shiitake. Like, usually I have to chop up the mushrooms, too, but they're so small. I think they're the perfect size for this soup. The thing about cooking, and especially soups, it's all about timing. It can go a little bit more. I'm going to grab the cornstarch. You're measuring out your cornstarch. So basically, we're about to create this mushroom roux. We're just going to throw this cornstarch on top, and it's going to make it all really chunky and brown, and it's going to create this paste. Once it gets really, really pasty, turn it down a little bit. This is interesting for me to see. There's no clumping that happened. No. I've always made a roux as the starting thing. That's why you got to make sure that all that cornstarch and butter are a real nice paste. That's when we're going to add the cream and the broth. And you are constantly stirring this. Yeah, because you don't want it to burn at the bottom. That's right. So because you're using straight up butter, you would have to really be careful about it. And one thing we've done in our family is stick a little bit of olive oil in to help keep the butter from burning. I've done that. Unfortunately, today, I don't think I have any olive oil. What? How dare you? How dare you? I like to get it really, really pasty because once you put that broth in, there's no going back. All right, here we go with the broth. Just want to put enough to match the amount that's in the bowl already. But you don't want to add too much broth in right at the beginning or it will take that much longer for it to thicken. See, it just keeps, keeps wow. thickening. So it's just by doing this multiple times and getting an eye for when it's right. Yeah, and I used to work at the shelter, and I've made this soup, I don't know, <laughs> hundreds of times. And so you, you kind of figure out how to, how to get in there. And so at this point, I'm about to put in half these herbs, and I won't reveal no. what herbs I'm putting in. This is one of my favorite parts of the soup is before you actually biscuit and it's all mixed in there together. And then it's just like five people in a music studio and each of them are like doing their part. And so like, you know, you go, you mix in the guitars and then you have the drums and then you have the singer and each of them is an individual thing. And this is like everybody in the studio recording their individual parts. And then we're about to like hear the final track. <laughs> Great analogy. And then I'm going to bring a blender over here. Once you have your bass and all the band members are in the studio and they're working together. Just um, add a little bit of water or a little bit of milk if you want, and then I blend it just to smooth it out. So here we go. Okay, the bisque. Blending is all done in the pot. Then we're gonna turn this back on and keep it at a low heat. How long would you cook that for? So the first part of this, just until you start seeing like those bubbles come through, you want it to be like barely simmering. I'll then add some half and half, the rest of the spices, and then vegetables that I want floating around in there. In this case, just mushrooms and garlic cloves. And you'll want to like let it simmer. I like to let it simmer for 45 minutes, an hour, just so the flavor really gets integrated. And those are the same spices you put into the root to sort of layer the soup with flavor. Yeah, definitely. And so, like, the flavor is in the soup and the best. You know, you'll taste the sage. The sage is the most prominent 
spice. But there will also be like the flavor and like the cloves and the mushroom caps. I thought we weren't supposed to be sharing ours. Well, yeah, I was about to say there's about 15 spices in here. So you guys can have one or two. <laughs> Usually it's like a little bit grayer than this. I added a lot of turmeric. Ready? And then every now and then you're going to want to check on it. If you see it kind of starting to like get clumpy or thick while it's simmering, just add a little bit of water and let it keep going. Well, while that's cooking, you mentioned working at a shelter. Can you further educate us on that? Yeah, a few years ago, I was working at a shelter as the food coordinator, which meant I cooked the food, but then also organized the donations from different organizations. That was one of the most fulfilling jobs that I've ever had. And this is here in Portland? Yeah, yeah, here in Portland. They're through the Salvation Army. It's a shelter for women and their children who are victims of domestic abuse and need a safe space to be able to find housing and find work away from a situation that could be dangerous. And so from the perspective of somebody who provides food, it was really important for me to be able to present this food from a place of caring. In my opinion, you're the epitome of peace, love, and soup. Yeah, and I mean, that's a really good note to all of us to just make sure that we're giving of ourselves when we can. And, you know, we're talking about a giving time of year, but it's also a good reminder that we can give any time of year, and it just makes us all a little closer. Yeah, I was going to say, if you have something that you're good at, use yourself as a resource. My friend Kim Hack, she's a really wonderful human being. She runs Kitchen Share. You know, like the tool library, yes. she runs a kitchen library where you can check out different equipment. And she's doing something where people can come and teach community cooking classes. In fact, uh, Kim actually asked me to do a soup class when we first met. And if you know how to make something, uh, you guys should teach a class too. We've made a few soups. Yeah, and it will be another wonderful opportunity for all of us to collaborate. And we better get back to our soup. So checking the soup. Um, you can tell the soup is looking good. Let's give it 10 more minutes. So this recipe is probably enough for around four to eight people, depending on how much you want to eat, also what you're pairing it with. But it is hearty enough to eat oh, on its yeah, own. by itself. And like I said, if nothing else, add some bread to the mix. Or a light salad for a little bit of something yeah, to accompany exactly. It. Okay, so now this is in November, and I guess we do have to talk about the elephant in the room. Would you, God forbid, is this an accompaniment to Thanksgiving meal. It's, it definitely has a color of it. I have cooked this as a stand-in for gravy and a lot of people don't necessarily know that it's not gravy and so they'll use it with their mashed potatoes or use it on their turkey. That's so, a great idea. And so then I'll really thicken it. You have it on top of your turkey, on top of your tofurkey. <laughs> Anything. So it looks like it's done and you're dishing her up. Yeah, usually I garnish it with chives and green onions and then like those big mushroom caps and here we go. Do you want one scoop or two? I'll take two, please. <laughs> please, sir, may I have another bowl? Please, sir, I want some more. Tasting time. Ooh, I like it with the scallion. So yes, he topped it with scallions, grated cheese, salt and pepper. Oh, and a spicy sauce? Yeah, a little dollop of chili sauce. So what's your reaction, Tabe? I just don't even know where to begin. I didn't know what a bisque consistency was really supposed to be, and it's thick, but it's definitely not as thick as a gravy. Oh, I don't even, I, I honestly, I'm slightly speechless. Oh. Are you going to make this when you get home? I sure am. And I could totally see this on the Thanksgiving Day table. 
he said he used turmeric to really give it that yellow color. But I would encourage that. Yeah, I think it should be something that should go as an accompaniment to every meal. <laughs> what do you think, Brian? Right, let me try. Let me dig in. Mm. Oh, my gosh. St. James, this is incredible. I love the bisque consistency. It is so unique to other soups we've done for our podcast. That butter, the half and half. And generally, I'm not a super fan of creamy soups, but I think it's delicious. I am nuts about creamy soups, but this one doesn't taste too rich. And so, Tavi, slow down and let us all have a taste. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my roommate, Harper, just got home. Welcome, Harper. Thank you. I know Harper is always a straight shooter. He's going to tell me what he thinks. Mm. Wow. Okay. You've been holding out on me, bud. Had you not had his mushroom bisque before? Yeah, this is uh, the first time. It's pretty incredible. Well, thank you. This is something else. Good. Harper says it's whoa. Nice. <laughs> St. James, thank you so much for making this incredible soup for us. Yeah, it was a treat to be with you and cook. Thanks for having me on the show. I believe that cooking especially is a labor of love and you do it for people that you care about. And I'm glad to have been able to make this soup for you guys. So where can our listeners find you? I have a show called What Are You Listening To? And also uh, the St. James Show with KBU. You can find both of those on the KBU website. But you can just find me personally on Instagram at STJMS underscore. Well, you have a podcast too. Tell our listeners about that. Uh, It's called People Are the Worst. And it sounds a little bit drab, maybe. (laughs) But the idea that anybody is capable of having a bad day or being their worst self that you can get behind the idea of this podcast that we can all connect over like the people that we wish that we weren't sometimes and aspire to be better people. Uh, and you can find that at peoplearetheworst.com. Yeah, and that's me. You heard it here, ladies and gentlemen and children. Cheers. Cheers. popular segment in our show did you know wild mushrooms did you know that no one is exactly sure how many types of fleshy fungi exist out in the natural world presently there are approximately 10,000 described species in North America alone which is believed to be anywhere from one-fifth to one-third of what's actually growing on out there Brian, did you know that engineers, medical researchers, and even designers are utilizing the natural abilities of various fungi to solve many of today's modern problems? It's true. Mushrooms are being used as antibiotics for water filtration, toxic waste cleanup, and as a mosquito abatement. Most surprisingly is the testing of mycelium as a brick, which is durable, flame retardant, 100% organic and compostable, while also being stronger than concrete. That's insane. It's amazing. Did you know that psilocybin mushrooms, commonly called magic mushrooms, or shrooms for short, are known for their psychedelic properties and have been reported to facilitate profound and life-changing insights, often described as mystical experiences? 
magic mushrooms, or psilocybin, have long played a role in various native medicinal traditions aimed at mental and physical healing in cultures all around the world. Recent scientific work includes studying the mushroom's ability to help people suffering from psychological disorders, such as obsessive-compulsive personality and severe anxiety. Minute doses of psilocybin have been reported to stop migraine headaches and have been shown to be quite successful in treating addiction, specifically to alcohol and cigarettes. And fun fact, in researching this, I found out that psilocybin or psilocybin are both acceptable pronunciations. Hmm. Tomato, tomato. Potato, potato. Exactly. Or fungi, fungi. Have you ever heard anyone say potato? No, I've never heard potato. No. Must be I a mean, British thing. Or maybe. Potato. Oh, maybe uh, it is a potato. Oh, it is a potato. I would like to have some tomatoes and some <laughs> potatoes. Anyways, back Tom to did you know. Did you know mushrooms are used for dyeing wool and other natural fibers? In fact, before the invention of synthetic dyes, mushrooms were the source of many textile dyes. The chromophores of mushroom dyes can produce all the colors in the spectrum in bold and vivid displays. There are even some varieties of bioluminescent fungi, which can be used to make dyes that actually glow in the dark. That is super cool. Did you know that mushrooms, though classified as vegetables in the food world, are not technically plants? They belong to the fungi kingdom and provide several important nutrients. General rule of thumb is that vegetables lacking color also lack necessary nutrients. But edible mushrooms, which are commonly white, prove quite the contrary. The fiber, potassium, and vitamin C content in mushrooms all contribute to cardiovascular health, as the potassium and sodium work together in the body to help regulate blood pressure. Fun fact, mushrooms are also the only vegan, non-fortified dietary source of vitamin D, offering an excellent alternative source of this very important vitamin. That's particularly beneficial information to all those vegans living here in the rainy Pacific Northwest. Oh, so true. And finally, did you know that all mushrooms are a rich source of umami, that savory, meaty taste sensation? And the darker the mushroom, the more umami it contains. Think shiitake and portobello. Dried mushrooms tend to have even more umami than fresh ones, and cooked ones more than raw. The more umami present in food, the more flavorful it will be. Delicious. We have here in the studio a rare treat, Haroya Skamoto. Great. We have a number of songs that you were playing for us today. Yes, all original songs that I composed. I use a tool called a loop pedal, which can record my voice and guitar in real time so that I can create layers. And I use that for some songs. Some songs I don't. I like a contrast. Tell us about music and growing up yourself. How did you become a musician in the first place? I was self-taught until uh, 22 when I had a first teacher. Actually, my first instrument was five-string banjo, which was very unusual because I am from Kyoto, which is the most traditional part in Japan. My father is about 72 years old guy. And when he was young, American folk music movement came into Japan, uh, such as uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Kingston Trio, that kind of music. And that became kind of popular. But my father didn't have a chance, even though he wanted to play. So 
he wanted me to play. <laughs> I never seen the instrument, so it was very harsh. I kind of liked the fact nobody had it, so I could show to my friend, you know. But there was no way to find banjo teachers in Kyoto. So about a year later, I started playing guitar too. And I grew up with a lot of American music, 70s rock and 60s good stuff, Simon Garfunkel, Carpenters, as well as some hard rock, you know, Bon Jovi and that kind of thing. Will you tell us that beautiful story about Sam's Hill and Sky? Yes, that's a song that I wrote in West Virginia last year. The county is called Pocahontas, which is a southern part of the West Virginia deep forest, pretty untouched. And there is an opera house there. I was talking to the manager, and she's a 36-year-old lady. She said, uh, if you have time tomorrow morning, why don't you come to my house? Because I want to show you around this area. It's very beautiful. And when I got there, road ended. And after that, another road began toward the mountain. The end of the road, there was nothing except a house. I thought she lives here by herself, and I thought she has some reasons, but uh, I didn't ask her. And we started walking into the woods. And she said, can we go up to the top of the hill? And I said, okay. But when I look, it was very high. And as we walked, she explained about the mountains and lands. And she picked up a stone. And when she flipped the stone, there was a fossil on the other side of the stone. And she said, this was the bottom of the ocean many, many times ago. And we started walking again. And she picked up another one, which looked like a tool. And she said this was a part of the tools which Native American people were using. Uh, a lot of Native American people were living here too. And we kept walking again, about 15 minutes or so. And when we got to the top of the hill, there was a tall tree. And from the tree, there was a bell hanging. And she rang the bell only one time. And the sound of the bell was so beautiful. And But at the same time, I was wondering, so... I asked her why there's a bell, because there's nobody around here. And she finally started talking about herself and her family. I had a son whose name was Sam. Sam was born to hospital, and we came back here to the mountain. But about a week later, uh, Sam died here. And the husband at the time, and I carried him to the top of the hill, and we buried him underneath this tree. And after that, we put the bell. And uh, I just couldn't say anything. It was very shocking. And especially I have a two years old daughter. So I know how she felt. So I kept silence. But she kept talking. If he's alive, he's nine years old now. And I'm 36. In a way, I'm still kind of young. And I might meet another man in the future. But I really don't know. I know I have to keep going. And I know my life keeps going. But I still can't leave this place. So at least what I can do now is I try to bring different musicians from different places to this opera house for people living here, for this community. After I heard her story, I wrote this piece and I named this as Sam's Hill and Sky. It's so beautiful.
I'd like to thank you for coming in and being interviewed here today. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. I'll be playing around the United States. So if you like uh, my music, my website is my name, Hiroya, H-I-R-O-Y-A. Last name is Tsukamoto, T-S-U-K-A-M-O-T-O. HiroyaTsukamoto.com. You've been listening to Peace, Love, and Soup. Audio nourishment for both the heart and mind. With Brian Delaney. And Tave Fashe Drake. As we enter the season of giving, we'd like to leave you with this quote. When we give cheerfully and accept gratefully, everyone is blessed. Maya Angelou. Join us next month for a little fireside storytelling over a big bowl of wassail. As we reflect upon the past year of Peace, Love, and Soup with highlights of cooking, laughter, community, and tears. And even a few bloopers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to this month's musician, Haroya Skomoto. For more information about this month's episode, along with links, photos, and recipes, please visit us at peaceloveandsoup.com, as well as Peace, Love, and Soup on Facebook. Happy Thanksgiving to you all. May kindness surround you. Thanks for listening.
Thank you very much.